House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Welcome back to the House of Mystery on KKNW 1150 AM. I'm Al Warren. And this is Kev Thompson. So, here we go. Another day. Got your coffee? Good Lord, I don't need coffee today. With our guest today, I don't need coffee. (laughs) Yeah, you're all hyped. Hyped and ready. So, of course, we talk about shows, and we've reviewed a lot of shows, and uh, one of my favorite uh, was the Mindhunters on uh, Netflix. And uh, we're lucky enough to have one of them join us. So we're going to jump right into it. Uh, We've got author Mark Olshaker. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Wow. (laughs) And we were talking about this before. You have uh, written an incredible amount of great books. And uh, not just Mindhunters, but like I said, we're going through the uh, cases that haunt us. And um, first of all, how did you get into writing? Well, I uh, I guess I got into writing in high school. I uh, I wanted to do something creative, and I was interested in theater and acting. And I wasn't a terribly proficient actor, but I I seemed to write pretty well. And uh, I guess it's just something I've always wanted to do. And I think the basics of it is, and you know, I know Alan, you're a writer as well, uh, is just basic curiosity about the world and what's going on. And uh, this. Uh, career has allowed me to live other people's lives vicariously, um, both uh, professionals and the people I write about, and uh, so it's, it's been very interesting. And uh, the books I've done uh, with John Douglas, the FBI's behavioral profiling pioneer, and now I think we're we're on number we've just done number eight. Uh, they allow me to live his life vicariously as well. <laughs> and all of his and all of his thousands of cases. Yeah, that that could be pretty interesting. That must be uh, at times it must just blow you away. Some of the cases. Uh, yeah, and you know, as as writers, we always say we're both as fiction writers and nonfiction writers, and I've I've published both. That we're looking for great characters, um, and um, one just stumbled into my life. Uh, the way it started was. I also do documentary film work, or have in the past, um, mostly for PBS. And I had written a number, written and co-produced a number of uh, programs for PBS's science series Nova. And this goes back to around the time that uh, The Silence of the Lambs was being produced as a movie. And I'd read the book, and I said to the executive producer of, at Nova up in Boston. Look, I read the book and I, I really liked it, and I think this is going to be uh, a big movie, um, at least if it's anywhere like the book. And I didn't know how big a movie it would be, of course. And uh, I said, why don't you, uh, why don't you let me uh, look into the story of the real behavioral scientists and profilers at the FBI that this is based on? And so at that point, not that many other people knew about them or were interested, and so. The FBI kind of welcomed me and my production partner, Larry Klein, with uh, open arms. And we uh, we hung around and observed, and then we did a film which was nominated for an Emmy called Mind of a Serial Killer, uh, which not only did well in the ratings, but every time PBS showed it, uh, 
the investigative support unit of the FBI got a, a rash of new uh, requests, which uh, so they kind of looked at us with uh, uh, in uh, it was a double-edged sword because they liked the publicity, but were overworked as it was. And then when the unit chief, uh, John Douglas, the one who really developed the profiling program for the FBI, uh, when he got ready to retire, he called me and said, do you think anybody would be interested in my story? And I said, well, I'm certainly interested, but let's, let's go to New York and see. And so we shopped a proposal around to various publishers, and we got overwhelming reaction. Uh, the book Mindhunter became... Uh, a big bestseller uh, allowed us to keep writing other books on uh, on the subjects of criminal investigative analysis uh, and uh, behavioral profiling. Uh, going up through our last one, uh, the last published one, Law and Disorder, which is really about using uh, behavioral science to uh, not just to catch the bad guys, but to exonerate people who have been erroneously charged uh, and convicted of crimes. Uh, and then finally, uh, after many years in development, Mindhunter became a, uh, uh, a dramatic series on Netflix uh, directed by David Fincher, and we couldn't be more pleased. Yeah. And I was saying that earlier before we got on. That that, that turned out so well. I mean, they did a really good job of that, that series. I agree. I agree. You know, they really... Um, they got the right actors, too, to, to, to create those characters, like to have just just to just just the way they grew throughout the the season was i thought it was great really good i did too and uh you know i didn't know the actors ahead of time i'm not that into popular culture and uh we knew ahead of time uh from david fincher that he planned on uh fictionalizing some of the characters traits uh and and details which we were fine with uh, keeping the bad guys as themselves with their own names, which we also were fine with. Um, but as I was telling you before we went on, uh, Al, it's uh, it's very true to the book in all the important ways. It's very respectful of the book. Uh, it doesn't uh, oversell. It's not like Criminal Minds where the profilers go in with guns blazing and all of that. They don't do that kind of thing. They're, uh, they work with, with the police, and they're human. And... Uh, um, and I think uh, not having a lot of overt violence, but showing the effects of violence and the psychological tolls, uh, make it a, a very interesting show. Oh, yeah. And we're thrilled that it's been renewed for a second season already. Well, now we have to wait. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we all do. Thanks. <laughs> so, Mark, this is Kevin. Um, Hi, Kevin. Yeah. Hey. Now, when you say that you had all the characters already, you know, in your mind, Edward Kemper, yeah. how accurate is that? Did well, I think interviews... it's, I, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very accurate representation. Um, I think probably he's a little more avuncular on screen than in, in real life, but uh, I think it's a very accurate uh, representation. He looks a lot like him. And the motivation that uh, is described is 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 very good. I think it brings up, which I know, Kevin, you would get into uh, with me if I didn't bring it up on my own, which is the whole idea which we get asked constantly, which is are serial predators born or made? And I think Ed Kemper is a good example of our answer that both. Uh, this is somebody who probably had a certain amount of hard wiring uh, into um, 
predatory uh, uh, and antisocial uh, ideas, but the way he was brought up, the way he was raised, and the way he ultimately wanted to get back to his mother, uh, at his mother, which he did, are uh, are very accurate and, and very true to life. Because a, a lot of the questions that we get is, did the interviews go like they did on television? Uh, to a large extent, they did. Um, well, the, the one thing, of course, is that the interviews extended for many hours. You don't get somebody to open up to you right away. There's a lot of talk that goes into it first. And the other thing that uh, the show didn't didn't uh, demonstrate, but is but it is true nonetheless. Before uh, the interviewers, the would-be profilers, went in to talk to each prisoner, they would go through the case file extensively, the police case file, or the, if the FBI had the case file, and then they would go into the prisons and study the uh, prisoner's uh, prison file before going in. So they really needed to know everything they could about the person and the, the individual and the crime and the victim before they talked to each of these uh, incarcerated convicts. Um, so that's, that's the sort of added part of it. And uh, the only other things are minor. They, uh, they didn't actually take the conversations because uh, John was very concerned that they would be perceived to be uh, uh, reporting the information back to other people. And, you know, convicts tend to be very paranoid, as, as you might expect. So uh, what they would do instead, rather than tape, they would ask questions, and then as soon as they would get out of the interview hours later, they had a um, questionnaire and a uh, profiling form that they would fill out in great detail uh, from memory. You know, and, and that's portrayed in the show as well. Um, for for example, whenever they do break out the tape recorder, and I believe it's in episode two with Edward Kemper, he gets a little, you know, he he, he gets a little hesitant, and then gets a little bit cocky. Yeah, and now, I think we all would. Yeah. Now, how much of that cockiness do you think is is him self grandiose? You know, being self grandiose. Well, remember, they're all they're all going to uh, have have a grandiose streak to begin with, which brings up another interesting point. That most of these serial predators, there are two elements warring within them. One is this grandiosity, the sense of entitlement, this sense that life hasn't treated them well, that they should have a better job, a better status in life, whatever, and that they're just entitled to go take it. And warring with that is this deep-seated feeling of inadequacy that most of them have. And so they're fighting within, within themselves constantly. So I think uh, if you saw a touch of grandiosity and cockiness in uh, Ed Kemper or any of the others, that's pretty accurate. Uh, in fact, at one point, uh, Kemper said to uh, um, John's partner, Bob Ressler, you know, I'm in here for life. I'm, the, I'm never getting out. Um, if I was to, uh, and he's a big guy, as you know, and he said, if I were to just grab your head and twist it off your shoulders and put it on the table in front of us, um, what are they going to do to me? Take away my ice cream? Yeah. Right. So, and I, so yes, and I, a certain, I would say there's a certain amount of cockiness there, yes. Yeah, and I understand that. I work in corrections, and what are you going to give to a man that already has life? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, I, one thing I, that kind of, it shows uh, during the series and that, and in the book, a lot of the um, police at the time in the 60s, 
and FBI wasn't really on board with this whole profiling, were they? No, and uh, probably as long as J. Edgar Hoover remained alive, it was going to be a just-the-facts-man type organization. They were uh, All evidence had to be completely objective. Uh, anything that sort of smacked of psychology or soft sciences or touchy-feely stuff, uh, Hoover and his lieutenants really didn't uh, care for. So it really was a learning process, and, uh, and the idea that... Um, We've got to prove this to the uh, to the brass that this works, and it and it as you saw from the series and and from the book Mindhunter, it uh, it took years. I would imagine. What what do you think is so fascinating um, that uh, the whole public now and everybody's so interested in uh, serial killers? Well, I think it's uh, it's like any other. Uh, boogeyman like werewolves or witches or uh, vampires or whatever. I mean, it gives us a, uh, a chance to live on the edge vicariously. But I think there's also something more profound about uh, our interest in, in true crime and why it's, it, it stays and it's, uh, you know, it's an evergreen genre, if you will. There will always be detective shows on television and always have been. And I think that's because true crime really deals with what we can conveniently call the human condition. Uh, it's all the thing, it's about all the things that we feel as human beings, love, hate, revenge, jealousy, uh, desire, um, envy, whatever, um, except it's writ large, it's, it's lived at the extremes. All the things that we can normally suppress or repress in ourselves, in crime it comes out uh, into the open with, without any filters. And so, I really think it's about us wanting to know more about the range of human experience and the range of human emotions and what happens when they're unchecked because uh, what makes society work is having people restrain themselves and the people who don't restrain themselves become aberrations and they're very fascinating aberrations. Fortunately, none of them are as fascinating in real life as uh, uh, Hannibal Lecter or anything like that, um, people who are that brilliant and that successful generally find other things to do other than go into crime. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's not the typical, right? Uh, serial, sure, of course not. Serial killers are not. It doesn't mean that they're automatically super intelligent. or. No, and, and most of them are. Most of them are average, I would say. Um, what makes them successful, though, is that they've gotten away with it a number of times. And any person, uh, any of us are going to learn from our successes as well as our failures. Uh, so a serial killer, by definition, is a successful killer. Yeah. And, and so and we were talking about and, that. And this brings in with serial killers, like the cases that haunt us, your, one of your other books. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you bring out some of the best points and I have to say uh, to the listeners, because we do a ton of shows on Jack the Ripper and Joan Bonet and all these cases that really stick with us. And and I was saying this before, how just going through your 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 premise in the book, just when reading it, just with the evidence that you give, just just laying it out simple and factual, takes away ninety percent of the theories that we get on this show. <laughs> And I mean that seriously, because uh, what's happened so much in the world is we see people that have this idea, this person, this is the person that did it. And then mm -hmm. they build their case around that. 
and they miss out so much of the evidence. They're not just laying out, like you, you express how it was in the 1880s in London, in Whitechapel, what was going on, how much prostitution there was. And you kind of go through the outlay. You paint the picture and then describe the, 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 the crimes. And so many people are doing it backwards nowadays. Well, I think that's true. And, and as uh, um, you guys both know from your experience, uh, if you start out with what we call a confirmation bias, uh, whether you're the police, whether you're the public, whether you're a detective, a profiler, whatever, it's very easy to uh, achieve the results uh, you seek or to get the evidence you want and have it prove what you want it to. But that doesn't mean it's going to be right. Um, every case has holes in it, and so you have to look at the preponderance of the evidence, you have to look at the big picture, and you have to be open uh, and objective to, uh, to what you're seeing. Uh, in uh, our last uh, published book, Law and Disorder, we focused on a number of cases, the Jean-Benet Ramsey case, as you suggested, uh, the West Memphis Three murder case in Arkansas, uh, the case involving Amanda Knox and Raphael Soletito in uh, Perugia, Italy. Um, and in each of these cases, the, uh, the confirmation bias going in destroyed any possibility of a, uh, of a good outcome right from the beginning. Yeah. I, well, what do but, you th- Oh, go ahead. Oh, well, th- this is Kevin. Uh, you know, but let's look at the other side of that. I mean, without a suspect or a focal point, uh, how do you narrow? Uh, how do you narrow it down? Like, okay, for example, we've Very got good question. Victim. Very good question. Yeah, you've got to start somewhere. You've got the victims. You've got these clues. But you've also, in Whitechapel, you've got, let's, you know, just for the sake of a number, 10,000 suspects. How do you narrow that down? Well, there's, uh, that, that's all of it, very good. Now, if, you're gonna, if we're talking about modern techniques and profiling, well, first of all, you let the evidence lead you, and that's going to, uh, and, and then let's make this point flat out. Uh, profiling itself or behavioral science isn't going to get you to the uh, finish line. The main thing is still good detective work. It's following up leads. It's interviewing witnesses if there are any. It's talking to people who in, in the area. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to marry the good detective work with good evidence, physical evidence, chemical evidence, behavioral evidence, and then... Uh, and then try to figure out who you're talking about. And what, what behavioral profiling does, Kevin, is help you with that very point you're talking about, which is to narrow the field. Uh, it won't give you any names, uh, most likely, but it will help you narrow the field down to the type of person you're looking for. And then, based on what you know about that type of person's likely behavior, you can start talking about proactive techniques to try to... Uh, find that person to get him or her to come forward, almost always a him, and, which we can talk about if you like, and uh, so that you can uh, actually get closer to finding that person rather than just waiting for another murder to happen and hope, hopefully you get better evidence. Hence, mind hunters, because we know the what, we know the when, we know the how, but it's the why that leads us to who. You're exactly right. Uh, John Douglas always says, he uses the uh, equation, why plus how equals who. 
<laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, it is that that easy, but we're making it sound well, it's not that easy, but it's, it's no, that, not at all. Straightforward, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> uh, what, so now these cases, like we talk about this, um, uh, why do they stick with us? Particular cases, like you can look at John Wayne Gacy, and. Mm -hmm. um, Son of Sam and certain ones like that, they really stick with us year after year after year. Look at Zodiac, yeah. you know, the new again, again, a good question. What we tried to do with the cases that haunt us was take murder cases um, going fairly far back, in, the, in this case to Jack the Ripper in London in 1888 and going up through the John Benet Ramsey case in the 1990s in Boulder, Colorado, and say these are cases which either haven't been solved or the solution does not seem satisfying to people. And yet, why do certain cases stick with us? It's because they represent something. There, there's something of an archetype there. Um, they represent something that we can all relate to uh, from our own experience, from the stories we read, from American or world tradition. So there's something about each of these cases that just resonates with us. Um, obviously, uh, uh, in the case of... Jack the Ripper, it's sort of the ultimate unknown ghost in the night. With John Benet Ramsey, it's the, you know, all-American little princess, uh, totally innocent, who just all of a sudden is killed in her own home. Uh, with the Lindbergh kidnapping case, it's uh, perhaps even more basic than that. You have to remember that in 1932, when this kidnapping took place, Charles Lindbergh was the most famous human being in the world. And every mother of the time was saying to herself and to her husband and to those around her, if Charles Lindbergh's baby can be kidnapped and killed, who, how, how are the rest of us safe? That's true. So it's usually something that, that penetrates deep into our psyche and, and speaks directly to our most primal fears. Do you think that that's possibly why there's such a fascination with these type of shows? Uh, you know, for example, sure. Mind Hunters. You know, you've mm -hmm. got Criminal Minds. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got all these crime shows because I want to appreciate my safety. I want to appreciate my space by seeing how bad it can possibly be out there, and I am a comfortable distance away from it. But I, you know. I want yes, to I, think, I think that's that's certainly a critical element. And then I think the other critical element is we are attuned uh, as human beings to problem solving and solving mysteries. And each of these presents a profound mystery. And most of us like puzzles or the younger generation way, way younger <laughs> than me, and I think younger than you two guys, uh, like video games and things like that. So we're always looking for that, you know, kind of, a challenge to unwrap, and mysteries are a big challenge. Yeah, and uh, until Google. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. well just, we're not going to go there. Um, now, so you brought up Amanda Knox, and of course, uh, yeah. being in Seattle, I've I've talked to her, and I, now, how do you think cases like that? When they get brought into the media, you know, uh, Nancy Grace and all this stuff, and it's, yeah. how can you uh, have a – depend on a trial is what I'm trying to say. How can they really get a fair trial? Um, it's, a very, it's very challenging, um, and I think the problem with, with that particular case, and unlike the Ramsey case, which is very complicated, um, 
the uh, the murder of Meredith Kircher in uh, in Perugia, Italy. That was not a difficult case to solve. It was very straightforward. I mean, we know who did it. We know why he did it. We know how he did it. And the fact that the police couldn't see that is uh, is almost incomprehensible to me. But what I said uh, what I said directly to Amanda, sitting across the dining table from her, is the reason you were convicted, in my opinion, is because the story that the police and then the media put out was much better than what actually happened. And when you get a be- and narrative in our lives, storytelling is extremely primal. And when you get a story that's better than the truth, the truth and evidence, as you guys well know, often doesn't have much of a chance. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that that seems to be. I just I just don't know how. Like um, writing, I wrote two books for Crimes in Canada. And mm-hmm. now they do things differently, and they're not allowed to broadcast on the media until mm-hmm. the case has already been tried and done. Do you think that's a possibility in the U.S.? Well, uh, you know, that's, that's again, a double-edged sword. Yes, we would certainly like to keep media bias uh, and public bias out of the case. On the other hand, there are many situations, um, and John Douglas has promoted this throughout his career, where the public is actually your best partner in solving a case. Uh, if you can say, we're looking for this kind of person, we think he might have had this kind of behavior, afterwards he may have started drinking, he may have uh, started taking drugs, he may have lost weight, he may seem nervous, he may be cutting out articles or following the media very closely, talking about it, he may have missed work, he may have, uh, he may have left town, whatever the individual details that you think uh, are accurate are, very often the public can come forward and, uh, and tell you. In fact, I can think of one case, I believe it was in Seattle, where um, the FBI did publish uh, characteristics of a, uh, of a serial arsonist, and it was his father who turned him in. Right. Yeah, and but, just like just like the Unabomber too, right? Is, oh, yeah. that's a that's a perfect example. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I was closely following and involved with the FBI at that point, and I can tell you there were agonizing meetings both within the FBI and between the FBI and the Washington Post and the New York Times as to whether they should publish the uh, publish the what was what the Unabomber called the manifesto and. Uh, the, uh, and the newspapers were rightly very concerned about uh, giving in to his demands because they thought, well, they can then be held hostage by any nut who wants to uh, get his, uh, his ideas published. But the FBI ended up really encouraging them to, uh, to publish it because they said, this is a long document. Somebody could very easily recognize something in it and come forward, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, uh, Ted Kaczynski's sister-in-law, uh, David's, his, his brother David's wife, said, God, this sounds an awful lot like Ted. And <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what happened. Oh, yeah, it's crazy. And I just realized... so, so, again, that is a double-edged sword about, uh, uh, about media involvement. And so there's no straight answer. But I think on the whole, I'd probably rather have our system where we're free to talk about it. But, Mark, I think what Al was asking, though, okay, we're talking now, we're talking the difference between America's Most Wanted and Court TV. Yeah. You know, America's Most Wanted said we're looking for this type of person. 
Mm-hmm. And, like, and like you were talking about, you know, if you put the public on alert, we're looking for this type of person. They're going to look this way, act this way. But what if we already have a suspect? For example, and, and I am guilty of this, and I admit it on the air. Court TV, I think, was birthed on Michael Jackson. We had a uh, suspect. You know, we had a suspect, and they publicized the entire trial. And I remember standing in my bedroom on that final day when they were getting ready to bring the verdict. And you talking I about Michael was, Jackson or O.J. Simpson? Oh, Michael Jackson. Oh, okay. I, I don't remember that as well, but uh, certainly I remember the O.J. Simpson trial, yeah. which I think oh, it was then well, called... I can't remember what it was called. Was it called Court TV in those days? I guess it was. Yes, Court TV. Court TV was birthed on Michael Jackson. And I was convinced that he was guilty. Why? Because of all of this publicity watching the trial. Mm -hmm. And I was astounded when they came back with a not guilty verdict. And I think that's kind of what Al was alluding to, is the fact that all of this publicity will absolutely bias an entire country or a viewing, a viewing audience against one particular person. Well, I think you're right. It can happen, and it certainly happened in the case of uh, John and Patsy Ramsey. Uh, before anything, I mean, within a week, the entire country was absolutely convinced they'd murdered their daughter. Yeah, that's true. So I don't disagree with that. Yeah, yeah. I see. Uh, you also wrote the Unabomber book, didn't you? I did. Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We, uh, that, was, that was a lot of pressure because uh, Simon and Schuster came to us uh, immediately after uh, Ted Kaczynski was identified and said, remember, this was in the 90s, so this was pre, uh, pre-widespread use of the Internet, so things were a little different in publishing those days. And they said, why don't you guys do an instant book? And I said, well, what does an instant book mean? They said, like, <laughs> right away. So we literally, we literally wrote that book in six days. Uh, and oh I would like to say on the seventh day we rested, but yeah. we probably did. Uh, and uh, so that was an interesting experience. But, you know, I've, looked, I've had occasion to look at the book not too long ago, and it holds up uh, pretty well, I, amazingly well, actually, in terms of what it uh, uh what it says, and then I've, I've had occasion to um, meet with David Kaczynski uh, since then, and uh, he's confirmed a lot of what we speculated about. Yeah, that uh, feels good then, hey? When, yeah, when, it absolutely does. Now, because it's only an hour show, I've got, I wanted to cover some of the other things you've done. Sure. And I've noticed one of the things that you were um, kind of writing about seemed to be kind of a specialty of yours was the... Uh, uh, thing about the deadly enemies about uh, yeah uh, the, the le- my my latest book is uh, uh, came out last uh, spring from Little Brown uh, called Deadliest Enemy Our War Against Killer Germs uh, with Dr Michael Osterholm uh, who's a very prominent epidemiologist with the uh, Centers for Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota and. I know you, your your follow-up question is going to be so. What do uh, germs have to do with uh, with uh, serial killers? Well, the answer is they can both be killers. And uh, my interest in public health, along with criminal justice, probably stems from a lot of the same source, which is these are both uh, both uh, criminal justice and public health are detective stories. Uh, different kinds of detectives, but detectives nonetheless, um, and they're hunting down uh, 
potential killers. And uh, the mysteries in both cases, the high technological and human drama in both cases, I think are very palpable. And so uh, I've, I've been interested in both subjects for a long time, and sometimes they overlap, as you might imagine in the case of bioterror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, countries uh, have used, even we even hear that today with um, Syria and different countries about uh, sure. killing sure. people, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, how do you feel about that subject? Like, how do you, like, things like Ebola and, you know, Zika and all these viruses that are around now, do you, do you feel it's something we need to be concerned about? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, one of, one of the, when we were promoting the book, one of the, one of the, things we really focused on was it was just about the time that President Trump was setting forth his first uh, draft of a new budget, which would up the military's uh, uh, budget by about 15% and cut a lot of other things to make up for it, including uh, National Institutes of Health and things like that. And we made the point that if you are uh, trying to protect national security um, and you're just focusing on human killers like armies and bombs and things like that, you're missing a major point of uh, national security, which is our protection from uh, diseases, particularly infectious diseases. We started the book during the Ebola uh, crisis. We finished the book during the Zika crisis, and uh, there's no reason to think that we're not going to have continual crises after that. And particularly, um, we all know from history about the 1918 influenza uh, virus, the so-called Spanish flu, that went two and a half times around the world and killed between 50 and 100 million people. Now, we may think that we're in better shape to take care of that, something like that would happen again like that with 100 years of science under our belts. But in fact, uh, we're less uh, able to take care of something like that now. We have three times the population we have airplane travel, which means anybody who's infected can get to anywhere else in the world within a matter of hours. We've got tremendous amount of international travel. We have uh, uh, we are losing our wilderness areas where these viruses can hide, so they're spread to the public uh, a lot quicker. Um, we've got uh, uh, we've we've got huge populations now in mega slums in places like Kinshasa and. Lagos in, in Africa and different places in Southeast Asia and, and elsewhere. And we've also got a world-connected just-in-time delivery system so that uh, uh, if, if one part of the world is affected, it affects all other parts of the world. Let's give you a real quick example. Uh, Dr. Osterholm and his group uh, about five years ago did a survey where they asked um, uh, doctors of pharmacology at uh, some of the leading hospitals in the country, what were the uh, drugs that you needed to uh, just to save lives on a daily basis? We're not even talking about the heart drugs, uh, you know, uh, cholesterol-lowering drugs or cancer drugs. We're talking about the stuff that's like on the crash cart in the emergency room. And they came up with about 30 drugs, including insulin and things like that. What was interesting is, all 30 of those drugs were generic. They were out of patent, so they were all generic drugs. And all of them were primarily manufactured outside the United States. And the best hospital in the country had no more than a 30-day supply. So if there's a worldwide pandemic of anything, uh, we may have the best hospitals in the world. It's not going to matter if we can't get the life-saving drugs to, to cure people. 
So that's just one example of how, not how, how unprepared we are. And here's how easy it can happen. Wasn't there a case here in the last few years where there was a cult that was actually that actually contaminated a salad bar with yeah, bacterial agents? Yes, the Sri Rajneesh cult, cult uh, just below you guys in Oregon, I believe it was. And uh, yeah, and their their plan was simple: we'll poison salad bars uh, right before an election so that we can take over the town by voting. Crazy. Uh, well, we all know about Oregon. So, uh, so, now, so there's another case where, where crime and uh, germs come together. I find that really fascinating. I, I, I'm really interested in that subject, and I, I just wonder why it doesn't get talked about more. I think, I think people are even more afraid of the subject than they are of crime. I think most people feel well, we can probably stay away from crime or it's not likely to hit me. But we all, we all get viruses, we all get bacterial infections, and uh, I think it's a little too terrifying for most people, and including a lot of people in the government. Yeah. That's absolutely true. And I'll speak from experience because that's exactly how I feel. I can point at a killer... You know, I mean, I work in the business. You know, I can walk up and down the rows and point to killers, but a virus, you can't see it, you can't fight it, you can't no. stop and it. If you it, have, it. And if you have, and if you have a, a, a virus like influenza, and it happens to be a very virulent and deadly strain, you're gonna, you can catch it just by breathing. I mean, think about it. What, yes. what, if, what if the only difference... But, but, from AIDS to the way it really is was instead of getting it through uh, extreme bodily contact, bodily fluid contact and transfer, what if you could get it through breathing? We'd all be dead by now. You know, and here's another scary thought since we're on this. You know, if a person jumps up in an airplane with a gun, you may be able to stop them, but if they just simply spray something, that whole plane is dead. That's right. And, and the scary thing is, if it's a virus, if it's a deadly virus, something on the order of smallpox, for instance, um, we won't even know for days afterwards that the, a crime has been committed. Oh, great. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Mark. No, it's a real problem. Um, even something like anthrax, which we know what it is, we know how to cure it. Uh, we, um, but if um, if a large uh, uh, a large volume of anthrax spores were released, say, in the Mall of America, uh, mm-hmm. I think there would be no way you could you could clean a place like that up. That would it would be like the Chernobyl of the plains. Uh, it would be you'd have this rotting hulk there for hundreds and hundreds of years. And you wouldn't be able to get close to it. You couldn't clean it, up something that big from from no. spores. No, and as fast as it would spread, because okay, let's say we yeah. we do a tactical nuke. You know that it's only going to spread so far. Exactly. If I if I start shooting people, the range of the weapon is only so far. Right. But if I contaminate an area with viruses or bacteria, right? Okay, you may be able to contain that area, but who has come and gone since the containment? And where, where did they go? Mm-hmm. 
just as an example, and this was not a crime, obviously, but look at the measles outbreak that had its uh, center at Disneyland a couple of years ago. Um, I think that that ended up uh, contaminating like 35 states or something before they were done. And unfortunately, uh, you know, we don't take measles seriously anymore. And so uh, the immunity, the herd immunity to measles was not what it should be. Wow. Now, it, it, you actually wrote Man Down as well, right? Or you're part of that. I'm part of that series. I actually created the characters. Uh, we, we that was part of a uh, series we began called Broken Wings, which was actually based on. That's a novel that was based on an actual idea that John had, was which was to create kind of a uh, crime-solving flying squad that had all the facilities, both uh, behaviorists and uh, lab people and uh, crime scene technicians that could go anywhere in the country on a moment's notice and uh, and try to solve a crime before it got too too old. In other words, in the first 48 hours, if possible. So it's kind of focused more on a uh, terrorist attack? Not necessarily. It could be any kind of crime, but certainly it would have, a it certainly would have an implication for terrorist attacks, yeah. Well, um, all, the, all the happy thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. What, what else can I brighten your, your nice days with? <laughs> well, you know, makes you feel good, eh? Uh, so who killed? Who was Jack the Ripper? Well, uh, oh, boy. Uh, you know, I, I'm, 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 uh, I'm worrying with myself right now about whether I should give it away or make your, uh, your listeners buy the book, but... Let me say that we, uh, what we did was we applied, uh, we, we looked at all of the uh, physical evidence that was available. We tracked, we went to the crime scenes, we, we, we drew lines around uh, where the uh, concentric circles around where the crimes took place. We looked at the order of the crimes, we looked at the, uh, uh, the evolution and acceleration of the crimes. And then we talked to people at uh, Scotland Yard uh, and looked at all the, the written material. And we concluded that much as we would have liked one of the sexy uh, suspects, like uh, Queen Victoria's grandson, uh, Prince Edward, or the royal physician, or any of those, um, we concluded that it had to be a denizen of the East End. And as you said earlier, you have to understand what the East End was in those days, and we're pretty convinced that we uh, identified the suspect. And the reason uh, is because if you triangulate reports um, from Scotland Yard, uh, it's very much my uh, opinion, and I think a lot of the current detectives at the Yard who study the case uh, agree with me, that even though nobody was brought to trial, uh, the police actually knew who did it. And uh, the most compelling evidence for that is that the East End was swarming with cops, uh, both from the Metropolitan Police Force and the City Police Force, which was the police force for the financial district where a lot of this stuff happened. And they were being roundly criticized by the newspapers for not having caught the, uh, the unknown subject and all of that. And then uh, right almost immediately after the uh, last murder, that of Mary Kelly, which was a total dismemberment uh, murder, right after that the police stood down and they took all the uh, cops away. Now, there's, you cannot convince me that that would have happened if they hadn't thought that the threat was over. Oh, 
Yeah. Yeah, that, that, it's, it's so is, is, that, is that a way of teasing yeah, the audience is. about who did it without actually telling them? Yeah, yeah. No, it's good. I mean, I, I'm listening, so I know. But uh, they, yeah. <laughs> that's good. Make them go out and buy. That's what they need. No, it's the cases that haunt us by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. That's right. You know, there's it's fascinating. We actually will have all of your books placed on our website because. Oh, that's great! Thank I, you. I just, I, I'm telling you, it's just, uh, it's like finding a treasure. Um, great books, great, great books. Well, what's next for you? Are you, guys, are you planning the Mine Hunters too, or? Well, we are. We are planning another one. Uh, uh, taking off on the success of uh, the Mine Hunter television series. What people have been asking us for a long time is, well, you've sort of touched on it in your books, but um, how do you? Could you give us an in-depth look at how these interviews actually take place? What transpires between uh, a guy like John Douglas and uh, a violent offender when he's interviewed in prison? And, ha and how do you actually learn enough, uh, get enough insight to correlate what was going on uh, in the, in the uh, predator's mind with the evidence that you see at the crime scene? So we're actually doing a book now uh, which we are going in which we are looking at a couple of cases, some cases that people know well, some cases that they don't know well, and showing uh, an in-depth uh, dialogue and insight, if you will, uh, between uh, John and uh, incarcerated criminals. So that's our next book, I think. Well, keep them coming. <laughs> we're thrilled. Thank you. Yeah, we're thrilled. Um, well. That's great. We've really enjoyed this time. I, 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 have I. I hope you'll come back um, anytime. Anytime you invite me. You know, we, we, lo we love talking about crime. That's sort of what we do. And mm -hmm. uh, now everything will be on uh, the website. Now, you have a website as well. What, what would that be? Uh, we, do, we do, but we, we're, uh, I'm not going to give it to you right now because we're trying to clean it up and do more. We've been pretty busy, so we haven't been able to do much lately. But. Oh, wow. uh, uh, we will uh, we'll, we'll let you know, and we'll uh, we'll be revivifying it pretty soon. Okay. Another teaser. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all all of our books are available on Amazon uh, in all different kinds of forms. Uh, Mindhunter has just been uh, released in a new version to co uh, to coincide with the television series. So it's got a new introduction that we wrote to bring readers up to date on what's happened uh, since, who's, who's still alive, who's died, who, which cases have been solved, which haven't. So uh, we think readers will be interested in that. Yeah. And, and again, we'll have everything posted on, on our website, and whenever yours is back up and, and running, we'll have that posted as well. So Great. So it's been a great show. Uh, thanks very much for being here. Um, Thank you. And Alan, you know, you know where to reach me. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so again, our host has been Mark. Shaker, and of course, he's the uh, one of the mind hunters that you see on the Netflix series. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you guys both. Mark, it's been an honor. Thank you. Okay, welcome back. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show is over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.